It's the fucking rice milk. <laughs> Just blame it on the rice milk. Blame it on the rice milk. Friday, November 1, day zero, take three for Brexit, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, Dutch News contributing editor and unwilling strike correspondent. With me today is Gordon Derrick, my fellow Dutch News contributing editor and sunbather, our <laughs> regular co-host, master student in civil engineering and Senseo fan club president, can't be with us today because he's recovering from an all-night Brexit Halloween movie binge. Do you want to mention his name? Paul? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Is he dead to you now? He's been dead to me for weeks. I think he's literally dead because he's been he's been following Brexit so obsessively. I think his brain has just turned to mush. Yeah, he has yeah. been missing for like a concerningly long period. He of has time. been missing for a long time. When he does pop up, it's always with some kind of bizarre query about Brexit. I'm concerned about him. I'm. I'm. Why, why if this horrible nightmare was not actually was one you could just step away from? Would you not step away from it? I don't know the answer to that. Last week he turned up with the background on his phone being a picture of Kim Jong Un. <laughs> so on sure. a horse, on a horse, yeah. Wow. Or the like, two weeks ago, whenever the last time was that I saw him. Yeah. Uh, so happy not Brexit day. Yeah, thanks very much. This is yet again. Non- I'm getting used to these um, Brexit extension days, non-Brexit days. Yeah, actually. They're becoming quite. Uh, They're becoming quite common. Quite the thing. Yeah. 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 So so I'm, now I'm, we have I'm until. Looking for, I'm looking forward to the next one. The end of January, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. In January. And in the meantime, of course, there's an election. We'll get into that later on. Will um, we? Do we have to talk about this? I'm afraid, yeah, kind of. This isn't uh, a Brexit podcast, goddammit. <laughs> Everything, Everything is a Brexit. Brexit podcast. Yeah. It's, and, like, um, it's like the episode of The Prisoner where the giant ball just keeps chasing him round and round in circles <laughs> and he keeps coming back to the village. It's Brexit. Yeah. Uh... You were out sunbathing this week, Gordon. I, well, I was out enjoying the sunshine. Yes, in, with a piece of pie. At a beach cafe with a no- lovely piece of apple tart and a cappuccino. Shaming the Dutch people on for complaining about the weather. Yeah, I just don't get why people... Having lived in Glasgow for 13 years, I cannot understand why people complain about the Dutch weather. It was it was sunny, it was bright, it was a bit chilly, but it is October. But I could sit outside and I mean, have coffee and apple tart. The problem is, is that you lived the, in Glasgow the for beach. 13 years, yes, that's true. which is the only place with worse weather than the Netherlands. No, no, no that's not true. There are loads <laughs> of places in Scotland with worse weather than the Netherlands. I mean, all okay, fine. It's yeah. let me you, 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 you lived in lived, Belfast. You know what this is like. I do, know, but I don't <laughs> complain about the weather here because I think the weather here is fine. But please don't show up at my door with pitchforks and torches about that. Right. And you've been uh, you've been roped in the position of uh, strike correspondent. I don't want to write about <laughs> sticks. If I ever have to write the word stick stuff in an article ever again, <laughs> it's going to be too soon. I am so tired of like dealing with all of these strikes and just writing about heavy vehicles on, on the, the Mallee Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious to know what the teachers are going to do because we're going to talk about the upcoming teacher strike and maybe they're going to like come out to the Mollyfeld with the stints. I guess a new stints. New yes. stints. Yeah. I don't know. Like what sort of heavy. Material would they have kids backpacks? I don't know. Yeah, uh, school buses. School maybe. buses, maybe. Yeah, yeah or, maybe or, be... or just maybe. No, I just think maybe the parents' bikes. If you see a parent taking their kid to school That's in the morning, true. it is so laden down with stuff. It probably does way more than an articulated truck. That is true. Yeah. That is true. So maybe we'll see that on the Mallet yeah. Uh So Paul's not here, but he did send us an opf. He did send us an opf. Yes, another week, another opf, and this week's opf was caused by the postcode lottery which is the most Dutch thing after cheese and broti croquette. Do you ever uh, do the postcode lottery? I did for <gasps> briefly you for a bit. You are very Dutch. Yeah, but I actually cancelled it. Oh, okay. And then they, they keep sending they me. They keep sending you yeah, stuff. stuff. I mean, I've yeah. never done it and no, they no, still no, send me stuff. Now they've got my address, they just keep sending me stuff. Yes. 
and I'll, I'll never escape. It works on the basis of turning jealousy and envy into a business model. The idea is that everyone takes part because they actually hand out prizes by street and by postcode, so therefore you're terrified your neighbours will get a prize and you won't. Yes. So that's why you buy a ticket. And it, it's incredibly successful. So uh, luckily, though, the lottery does donate quite a lot to charity, so people can use that as an excuse for buying lottery tickets. Don't buy lottery tickets. They're a scam. Yeah, they are. Always. In order to keep people happy, the lottery regularly hands out small prizes, uh, such as feedstuffs and saddlebags for your bike or tickets to the coca Hoff. This week, though, they gave thousands of people gift cards for vegan food, and that uh, triggered an awful lot of people. Today's uh, World Vegan Food Day. Did you know that? Is it? I didn't yes, know. Happy is. World Vegan Food Day. You're welcome. Are you eating vegan food today? Uh, I, I am actually eating vegan today, although I do try to eat vegan one day a week, so today oh, was all right. Today was my one well, day. Well, I failed because I, I had uh, cereal with milk for breakfast. Uh, no, I have so. a, I have rice. We have rice milk in the house. Ah. So that's what I've had in my Is it tasty? It's, I mean, it's pretty much fine. It it's tastes pretty a little bit... I don't want milk to be pretty much fine. No, I want it to be nice. I like, like, proper heavy cream in my tea most of the time, <laughs> and I'm unwilling to give that up. But one day a week, I feel like I can, like, toss a bone to the environment oh, and do that. Fair so enough. Seems fine. But anyway, uh, other people were less um, uh, happy with this. Uh, one of the many thousands of angry commenters on Twitter, which is where Caroline commenters has always turned up, said, quote, This lottery is forcing me to participate in the sustainability nonsense. Uh, although they're not forcing you, you chose to buy a ticket, but never mind. Um, the gift card became a trending topic. Others accused the lottery of spreading Hoon Link's propaganda, and so on and so forth. A lot of people also found the Hotpef ridiculous, which meant there was Hotpef about the Hotpef, which is always the, fine, the best kind of Hotpef. That is the pinnacle of Hotpef. Yeah, that is. Some people called on the people who weren't happy with their gift cards to donate them to their local food banks, but it's unclear how many actually did this. I, 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 have, I have so many questions. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. As always. As always. Uh, one, why are you mad at something you got for free? <laughs> All of these angry people have, like, someone's brother's girlfriend who is a vegan. Just wrap it up nicely and give it to her for her birthday. She'll be very happy with it. Okay. Did you see this article in The Guardian about why people hate vegans so much? I saw it was there and I haven't read it. You should no. read it. It's pretty good. Okay. I think all of our listeners should good read tip. it. We will, we will link to it should in the notes. It? Yeah. Okay. Don't be mad at vegans. They're fine. They're, yeah. they're fine. Yeah. They're not causing any harm. They're not causing they're, any they're harm. They're not parking their trucks on the Maddiefeld. Yeah, like, there's so many <laughs> better things to be annoyed at. But this week we only have one story, Gordon. Yes, There's just do. one story. There is only one story. There's only one story, yes, and it, it is sports. It is, amazingly, it is sports. It is sports. I insisted that sports be the top story this week, which mm. never happens. I know. I hate sports. I think we should get rid of it off the podcast, but not this <laughs> Except week. Except on this occasion. Not this week. Except on this occasion. So what's going on this week? What's happening this week is that last weekend was the Classica, the showdown between bitter rivals Ajax and Feyenoord that is traditionally the most hotly anticipated fixture in the Eredivisie. Except that this year it was a damp squib, because Feyenoord, to put it bluntly, were terrible. Hakim Ziyech and Nicolas Taliafico put Ajax two up inside seven minutes. David Neres and Donny van der Beek doubled the scoreline by half-time, and the only mercy for Feyenoord was that Ajax took their foot off the gas in the second half, so it ended 4-0. Angry fans, armed with bottles and fireworks, greeted the team bus on its return to Rotterdam and had to be held back by police. All of this put manager Yap Stam, who only arrived in the summer, under tremendous pressure, and on Tuesday, he bowed to the inevitable and resigned. And this paved the way the return to Dutch football, and I've made you wait too long to say this. So long, <laughs> so long, I don't care about all this other stuff. And it paved the way for the return to Dutch football of... Dick Lawyer. Dick Lawyer. He's back! He is. I'm so excited. At the age of 72, Dick Advocat is taking charge of his 15th professional football club. He is like, he just, he's like herpes. Like, he's... he just will, he is the herpes of Dutch football. I'm sure he'll be he flattered to say that. He will never go away. I'll tell you what, he's been called worse things like that than that in his time. I, I want to find out secretly, desperately, that he 
is secretly listening to the podcast <laughs> and thinks that we are just complete crazy people who are weirdly obsessed with him. Which it, it's a fair analysis. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you particularly. Yeah. Um, His name is Dick Lawyer. How can you be obsessed with him? <laughs> Dick Lawyer has, uh, yes, his clubs include uh, Glasgow Rangers, Zenit St. Petersburg, everywhere, basically, as a Dalkmar. This goes on. He's also managed six national teams, including Serbia, South Korea, Russia, and unlikely as it seems. It's an impressive resume, man. And unlikely as it seems, he is the most successful manager of the Netherlands national team ever. Yeah. Yeah. Completely mad. Yes. Advocaat said he'd retire after turning around Utrecht's fortunes in the second half of last season. But he said he's retired, like. All the a million time. times. Yeah. So many times. After every job he says... No, every time he starts a job he says, this is my last job in football. I He has threatened to retire more times than I have called him Dick Lawyer. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he, he has promised to retire more times than Nigel Farage. That's how bad it's got. <laughs> Please don't compare him to Nigel Farage. Farage is terrible. Dick Lawyer is at least a pleasant distraction from yeah. Brexit. Well, as we said before in this podcast, you can't keep a good dick down. And when Feyenoord needed an emergency replacement for the beleaguered Yapstam, there was only one name on the list. I'm so excited. <laughs> Did you see this like great advertisement about how it made him like sort of seem like he's like the a rogue detective? It looks like, like some 1970s TV exactly. cop. Who doesn't it? it's oh, it's so amazing. <laughs> so I heard other sports news there about the Netherlands. News. Yes, uh, because it's also a- quite exciting. Apparently, some yeah. Dutch player is going to play professional uh, soccer or yeah, football. Balls around for money. Yeah, in the United States. Yes, which for, is crazy. For, for the United States. For the United States. Yeah, it's going to play in the Sardino Dest. Yes, uh, one of Ajax's rising stars, eighteen years old. Um, very impressive in that game against Feyenoord, and but he's now uh, because he has an American father, uh, he's pledged his future to the U.S. national team. Yeah. so he's going to turn up for the states. Good for him. It's yeah. very exciting. Yeah, he's a right back. He's born in Almira. Yeah. Um, and he's basically yeah, born and raised in the Netherlands. Um, but he's played two friendlies for the US. Yeah. Uh, but you only uh, commit yourself once you've played a competitive game. Yeah. Um, and he's now said he will play for the States and not for the for Orania. Yeah. I, um, it was very entertaining to see this going on in, in uh, the American media because, first of all, uh, everyone basically was shocked because why on earth would <laughs> yeah. you play soccer for the US when you could be playing for it, literally any yeah. country in Europe or any country anywhere <laughs> besides the US? Well, he couldn't. He had, he had a choice of two. Right. The Netherlands or, or, or the US. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, the American perspective on things is sort of like us and then like yeah. Europe, which is kind of like an indistinguishable yeah, yeah. blob. Yeah. And then the second question was attempting to explain and constantly mispronouncing Ajax and what Ajax yes. was and how football in Europe works, <laughs> which was extremely entertaining and I appreciated it yeah. immensely. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, questions about why he made this choice, but uh, and Des said he said it felt right because he played the US youth team. They'd always been very good to him. More cynical analysts uh, suggested that maybe it was because uh, he plays in the same position as Denzel Dumfries, who's a better player than he is. Mm. And so therefore he's got more chance of getting an international cap for America. Uh, you wrote in a question in the script for me, and I don't understand it. Well, just, write, just read it out then. So why? So was? So was? Yeah. So was Johan Derksen up in arms about this? No. Why? Uh, well, he's been scathing in the past about Dutch players <laughs> turning out for other countries. Yeah, Johan Dexon is a well-known football analyst and uh, uh, an Afghan hound impersonator. Uh, was spitting tax when Orkun Kutsu declared back in August he was going to play for Turkey. He called it an insult to the Netherlands. He accused Turkey, uh, Kosu of uh, selling out to the country that had given him an education and so much to my social welfare and provision. Can I can I speculate about what you're going to say next, not having read this part of the script? Uh, you can probably say. Do was so. our 
favorite Afghan hound impersonator more mad at the Turkish guy for going to play for Turkey than he was at the American guy for going to play for the US. Spookily, even though you've never seen this guy, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. he was much more serene about uh, wow. death decisions. I can't imagine why that would yeah, be. He said, quote, I don't have a problem with it. I just think he doesn't have the quality to play for the Netherlands. It's a hell of a mystery, and if anyone out there has any suggestions why Johan Derksen was apoplectic about a Dutch-born footballer playing for Turkey, but very relaxed about one playing for the United States, then do get in touch, because we're yeah. scratching our heads here. Podcast at DutchNews.nl if, yeah. you've got a, uh, if you've got a solution to this conundrum. There were more long delays on the roads headed to The Hague on Wednesday morning as thousands of construction workers massed on Amalifeld to protest the government's measurements for combating nitrogen pollution. No tractors this time. I think there were a couple of tractors. I think there's some tractors, yeah. yeah. But lots of heavy construction equipment, as the industry says thousands of building projects have been crippled by a recent Council of State ruling. So we are going to recap this extremely quickly because we've talked about it on two previous podcasts. Which is already too many. Which is four too many. The highest administrative Dutch court ruled earlier this year that an arrangement the government had made to allow polluters to delay compensating for their nitrogen emissions violated EU law. As a result, the permits for new building projects have been delayed as the government tries to figure out what to do. For most of this month, it was the farmers who were really mad because most of the pollution in question comes from livestock farming. But now it's the builders. So... You got to have yet another day out on the Malleyfeld in the cold. If I never go looking back at to the Malleyfeld looking again, at things with their big tires. Soon. Yes, yeah. basically, it was it was fun. And what's the government doing? I assume trying to get proper building permits for the renovation work at the Binnenhof. But other than that, uh, ministers have pledged to put forward a package of measures by December 1st. Some things include allowing small building projects to restart without emission regulations, relaxing the rules for some pollutants, letting workers in the industry claim part-time unemployment, and on the livestock situation, they want to feed dairy cows an enzyme which will make their manure less nitrogeny. How does that work exactly? I don't, I don't want to know and I don't want to think about it too hard, so I'm, we're not going to. Yeah, fair enough. And as you mentioned, there are more strikes coming up as well. Yes, but this one does not have anything to do with stick stuff, so I'm less cranky about it. <laughs> a national teacher strike will go ahead next week after unions say their demands for extra funding for the sector have not been met. Union leaders gave the government until October 21st to respond to their request for a $423.5 million financial package in 2020, half of which would go to primary schools. Teachers have been campaigning for the wage gap between primary and secondary school teachers to be closed, and they want their workloads to be reduced. Yeah, but I don't think they're going to the Malleyfeld, the teachers. They've said that they, that they mainly want to promote their campaign on social media. Yeah, yeah. so this is a bit of the That's discussion, a... so we will see. We yeah. will see if they're out of the Malleyfeld. The last one went there, but I think people are just tired of the Malleyfeld being no. Malleyfelded, yes. basically. Yeah, and being just churned up. Yeah. By the, and also, yeah, teachers don't really have any vehicles with big tyres, as we said, we said earlier. No, it's true. Brexit news now, because in case you've been hiding in a cave, the United Kingdom is still trying to figure out how to leave the European Union. I have been trying to hide in a cave. It's, yeah. not, it's not working. Hang on, no, you, you're trying to hide in London, which is the worst place to hide from This Brexit. is true. Yeah. This is absolutely correct. And now there's going to be general election to choose a new government two weeks before Christmas. Although if you keep your polling card, you'll be able to exchange Boris Johnson for a half-price shaving set in the January sales. Because of the timetable, British nationals living in Europe have been advised to organise proxy rather than postal votes. When the European elections were held in May, thousands of votes weren't counted because they arrived too late. 
Christmas, of course, is the busiest time of year for the Postal Service already, and there's always a risk of strikes. So proxy votes mean authorising someone who lives in your constituency and who you trust, very important, so not Jacob Rees-Mogg, to vote on your behalf. There are around half a million UK nationals living in the Netherlands, but you can only vote if you've lived in Britain in the last 15 years. Euronews has a step-by-step guide which we'll link to. Do you still get to vote, Gordon? Uh, I do. Uh, unless, of course, uh, I take Dutch nationality, which is becoming an increasingly attractive prospect the longer this goes on. A mutilated model of a famous statue of a prostitute in Amsterdam's Red Light District has been withdrawn from an art exhibition after sex workers complained that it could incite violence and increase stigmatization. Nadia van der Linde, chair of the Prostitution Information Center, wrote to the Amsterdam Museum calling for the number one tourist attraction exhibition to be scrapped or modified. The exhibition, by British artist-activist Jiminy Hignett, features artifacts and images that, quote, tell the story of inequality, double standards, and human trafficking. It was also due to include a human-sized wooden version of the famous bronze statue, Bella, which depicts a sex worker in the door and stands in the center of the Amsterdam Red Light District. Bella was placed there to honor sex workers all over the world in 2007 by Mariska Mayor, a former prostitute who founded the PIC to share information, run tours, and campaign for workers' rights. The new display was also set to include videos of people chiseling their initials into this wooden model to demonstrate the violent side of prostitution, but the model will now be withdrawn. So why didn't they want this to be there? Well, some sex workers were saying that it's dangerous and it encourages violence against sex workers. I think generally the idea of having a replication of a female prostitute that can be carved into is it like at least distasteful. And I think, you know, these people are dealing with enough stuff. So if they don't want it to be in the exhibition, it shouldn't be there. What do you think? Um, I can't really disagree. I think it was just misjudged. I, I don't know of the uh, artist in question. I'm sure the intentions were good, yeah. but the execution was just not good. Yeah, I think that um, sex workers in the red light district are already dealing with enough yeah. stuff and so I think it just felt like a something that like wasn't supportive of the way that they want their profession to be viewed basically. A three-year-old dachshund who went missing in Kelderland 11 years ago has turned up 30 kilometers from home. Limo was feared to have been snatched by dog thieves or breeders when she disappeared in Gaanderen, but she was spotted roaming loose in the village of Varmsveld and quickly reunited with her owners thanks to her microchip. Please get your pets microchipped. She wasn't in great condition. She had a heavily matted coat, infections, tumors in her milk glands, a bladder infection, and badly neglected teeth. However, Dierenzentrum Achterhoek said she was too well-fed and socialized to have been living in the wild. So the mystery is, who was looking after her? I reckon it was Johan Derksen. I think it was Johan Derksen. Yeah. He saw in her something that yes. he sees in himself. He saw something reflected uh, in her. Yeah. Limo has now been given a haircut and medical attention. Her owners could not believe she turned up after all those years. Deer and Centrum spokesman Alex Ebers told the Ade. Oh, that's such a cute story. It's nice. I'm yeah. glad these people got their dog back. Yes, Limo come home. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no clues to where she might have been? No, unless she joined the Moonies and had been hiding out of farmhouse in Drenthe all this time. It's always possible. Which is entirely possible. No, other than that, no clues at all. We will be discussing prosecuting jihadis after this word from our sponsors. So, Gordon, we've got some Patreons. Yes. Tell us about them. Well, if you appreciate our efforts to bring you the latest news and political updates from the Netherlands, not to mention Dick Lawyer's managerial career... Which is mostly what this podcast is about. Indeed. Um, you can now show your appreciation by sponsoring us on Patreon. All new patrons get a shout-out on the podcast, and you can ask us a question about absolutely anything. 
within reason. So not about Brexit? No. This week we're saying hello to two new patrons. First, uh, Shemaine Valdez, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, who didn't get back to us with the question, but thank you very much for your support. You can, say, you can send us a future question if yes, you want. Yes, at any time. We've done yeah, that before. Sure. And to David Baumgold, who lives in Amsterdam, but was previously in Boston. Okay. Uh, Boston was the first city in the US to have subway trains in 1897, one year later than Glasgow. Oh, yeah. look at that, look at that. Yeah. And David has a nice straightforward question for us this week, which is, what's your favourite flavour of ice cream? <laughs> so, Gordon, you asked this in our in our podcast I WhatsApp did. group. And well, I expected you some lots of sparkling and amusing answers. Yeah, you were very me. annoyed to discover my favourite ice cream flavour is vanilla, because yes. I'm extremely boring. It's very boring. <laughs> it's it's very boring. literally the most boring answer you could give. I gave a second choice as mint chocolate chip, That's so I, I, it's slightly more Slightly interesting. more interesting, yeah. yeah. Do you know you can get drop-flavoured ice cream? Yes, I assume that that's Paul's favorite ice cream. We actually <laughs> featured Stu of Invader Stu, the yeah. guy who does the little uh, orange-haired oh, yes. cartoons, wrote about drop ice cream, and we <laughs> featured that on the on Dutch News a few uh, a few weeks ago, which everyone should go check out. Yeah, did he like it? No, it was it's terrible. It's <laughs> a drop. Come did, on. Just even mentioning it makes me, yeah, uh, drop turn my ice stomach. Cream. Oh, drop God. ice cream. Whose idea was that then? Uh, no, Paul's favorite, I think, is it was Stracciatella, which, again, is uh, what all Dutch people seem to like yeah, as their favorite is ice cream flavor. I'd never come across Stracciatella ice cream until I came to this country. Oh, really? No. Interesting. No. Hmm. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Uh, I like passion fruit and um, lemon sorbet. Okay, that's yeah. those are those are at least more exciting than vanilla is. I think so. I like vanilla. It's nice. Yeah. I like Good. chocolate as well. I've got to say. Yeah, I'm not a big chocolate eater, uh, so I don't really like chocolate. Yeah. If you'd like to sponsor us on Patreon and find out more about our uh, our taste in food, then you can um, visit Patreon.com/slash/DutchNewsNL. Lots of people, it turns out, do not want jihadis. You'd think that wouldn't be much of a surprise, but uh, here we are. Quote, we take responsibility for our own citizens, their wives and children. The Iraqi foreign minister told the NRC this week, European countries such as the Netherlands should take responsibility for their own nationals. This can't be making our favorite cyborg masquerading as a politician, <laughs> Steph Block, who told European leaders earlier this year, the Netherlands is not taking back any IS fighters. Very happy. So what exactly is at stake here? Yeah, what exactly is going on here, and who are these people we're talking about, and why do people think uh, they should be coming to the Netherlands? Well, we were talking about Dutch citizens. That's why people think they should be coming to the Netherlands. A 2016 Europol report found that 4,000 European citizens had joined the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. Uh, an estimate shows that around 300 of them are Dutch. We don't know exact numbers. These are people who were living in the Netherlands, and they chose to go fight in this conflict. Uh, for the moment, we are not discussing the issue of wives and children. We're going to get to that. I think at another time. Yeah. Um, although we should, we should mention there was a court case today. Yeah, it's going there? on right now right as now. we're recording, yeah. uh, in which uh, 23 women who are currently in uh, refugee camps in mm. uh, Syria and Iraq are suing the Dutch government to bring them back to the Netherlands. They would like to return home. Yes. Um, which is slightly less controversial, although NOS had an interesting article today about Yazidi refugees yeah. who are also settled here who are saying that they don't want these women to come back because they were brutalized by yeah. them when they were in uh, yeah, Iraq and Syria. There was any, the IS women in, in the camps were very much at the heart of the abuse against them. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a really It's a very complicated situation. situation. Basically. But for today's yeah. discussion, we're going to be focusing on mostly the men, people who went to specifically to fight, as opposed to maybe somebody who came yeah. along to have children with someone there or followed a husband or something like that. What is the case against bringing them back to the Netherlands? Well, uh, there are a bunch of terrorists who ran off to join a radical group 
group that hates, you know, basically everything. Not all of them, of course. There's some discussion about individuals who may have joined with groups against Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, but mostly we're talking about people who joined the Islamic State. Um, and for the, those various obvious reasons, some people in the Netherlands, politicians in particular, mm-hmm. do not seem to want them here. Yeah, there's an awful lot of political resistance, obviously, particularly from populist parties like yeah. Kate Wilders. But also, I think the Fefe Day, the main party in government, are also mostly opposed to it. Although yeah. uh, that's yeah, not uh, totally clear cut. But there are also, of course, other legal reasons yes. uh, as well that come into play. So, first of all, most of these fighters are in refugee camps in actual war zones. Uh, The Dutch government has repeatedly said they aren't risking Dutch lives to bring these people back. Um, This is why the government says they're also not trying to bring back Dutch children who are in these camps um, and and other women or other other people who are maybe been injured. Yeah, although again, Um, of course, there was an operation in the summer in June to bring back a couple of uh, orphaned children. Yeah, that was done in conjunction with France, who has been more aggressive in bringing people back. So... A little unclear, I think, exactly how dangerous it would be. Um, But Mm -hmm. for right now, if people who are in these refugee camps want to come back, they have to make their own way to a Dutch consulate, um, which, of course, is real challenging. Because it's not not like there's a lot of, like, consulates hanging out in... You know, if you're weird. in a camp in Kurdish-controlled Syria, right. there isn't a consulate to stroll on the cord. You've got to cross possibly two borders yeah. to get to your first consulate. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, secondly, there is a lot of questions about what to do with them once they return. Uh, so for the most part, going to fight in a war in another country is not illegal. Uh, in fact, committing a crime in another country is not illegal mm. here. So if you go to Germany and you punch someone in the face, as I know you frequently do, Gordon, that act is illegal in Germany, but it's not illegal in the Netherlands uh, for very good reasons. For example, say it's illegal in the U.S. to smoke marijuana. I know it's more complicated than that, but for the sake of the mm. argument. But if I smoke weed here in the Netherlands where it is legal, should I then be charged with a crime when I return to the U.S.? Obviously, most reasonable people think no, that no. that's that's a bad thing to do. Yeah, but nevertheless, this is a situation where just about everyone agrees these people have done pretty terrible things. And uh, yeah, for a lot of people, that's an argument not to encourage them to come back to the Netherlands or let, let alone actually repatriate them, right? Yes, um, but have they done terrible things? And how do you organize a fair trial in the Netherlands based on evidence that's thousands of miles away? And what crimes do you prosecute them for? Yeah. It gets... It turns out real complicated trying to have local courts uh, sort of organize trials against these people who I think mostly everybody agrees have done something and probably should not just be given carte blanche to return here. Um, Mm -hmm. But the question is, uh, what? But despite all these complications, the Dutch prosecution service is keen on bringing these people back, right? They do. The OM told the NRC in another interview this week, it's been a busy week for the NRC apparently, that they have put in 29 repatriation requests with the Dutch government. Um, They have prosecuted people in absentia, which is a move that has... It's not questionable legal grounds in the Netherlands, but there's a lot of places in the world that will not try people Mm -hmm. in absentia. Um, The Dutch government has had to pass some new laws um, to even have things to try them under, such as being a member of a terrorist group that wasn't illegal in the Netherlands until a few years ago. Um, The government is now trying to make it illegal to enter a war zone without permission, which would be another thing that they can like then prosecute them for, although they're getting some pushback from humanitarian and journalistic groups. But yeah, the Public Prosecution Service thinks that they can be brought back and be tried in the Netherlands successfully. There have been a number of trials in absentia, and on the basis of that, the court, particularly the District Court in Rotterdam, has uh, actually ordered the government to try and bring some of these people who've been tried and convicted back. Yes, there's there's been several. Um, There's been quite a few, actually. Though most of these people have been sentenced to, you know, four to six years or so in jail for things like being a member of a terrorist organization, Mm -hmm. which has also garnered a lot of criticism because people say, well, this is not adequate for, you know, the crimes that they committed. 
And uh, one example of somebody who was charged with being a member of a terrorist group was a Jacob Riedijk, yes, famously. that's yeah. the Dutchman who made a lot of headlines when his British wife, Shamima Begum, uh, was stripped of her UK nationality, rendering her stateless. We talked about this on the podcast a couple of months ago when it happened. He was sentenced to six years in jail when he was tried in absentia for, like you said, being a member of a terrorist group. So this is an example of the prosecution service here finding ways to charge mm. people. Although when you hear sort of interviews about things that he has done, I think six years does not seem like very long, which is one of the criticisms that's sort of being levied at this plan. So if it's very complicated and uh, yeah, often dangerous and impractical to bring cases in the Netherlands, are there any options for bringing cases where they are in, say, Iraq? Well, that is what Steph Block wants. So he went to the United Nations in September for the United Nations General Assembly and had lots of meetings with Iraq, which he said were positive, although judging from the Iraqi uh, foreign minister who gave the, the interview to the <laughs> yeah, NRC, yeah. maybe things were not so yeah, positive. He takes a different view. Yeah, so there's a couple of problems with this. One, apparently Iraq does not want that, mm-hmm. uh, which is seems like it would probably preclude that from happening. Secondly, you know, Iraq has a questionable judicial system. Um, I think most of us would probably not want to be tried for any crime in Iraq. They're not always free and fair. And also, they still use the death penalty quite often, which the Dutch are extremely opposed to. So one of the things Steph Block was trying to work out was whether or not they could have, say, the United Nations or some other independent organization sort of suss out the evidence and then have them tried in Iraqi courts with agreements that these people weren't going to be put on death row, but Iraq seems like real not into that. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't want to play ball with that at all. Nope. Well, what about the international courts, like the ICC here in The Hague? Syria and Iraq are not parties to the Rome Statute, which created the International Criminal Court. So the Islamic State fighters, they can't be tried in The Hague with other war criminals. There's no avenue yeah. for that. There have been a number of proposals to create ad hoc tribunals. Um, that's what was done with the Rwandan genocide or the Bosnian War. Those things seem promising, and most sort of like academic experts on the issue that I have spoken to about this seem to think think that setting politics aside, that's probably mm-hmm. the best like legal avenue for prosecuting this. But those two tribunals, the one for Rwanda and the one for the Yugoslavia tribunal, were established by the United Nations. And that requires approval from the UN Security Council. Do you know who's on the UN Security Council, Gordon? Well, that would include countries like uh, France, the UK, China, the USA, and uh, oh yeah, Russia. Russia's there, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. you know who's real buddy-buddy with Syria? Uh, that would be Russia as well. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So moves to set them up have so far been you know, thwarted by, by Russia. Yeah. The Dutch government does have an obligation to protect its citizens. So this is how some groups are trying to force the Dutch government to bring back the wives and children of the fighters. That is, I think, what is at stake at the case that's going on in The Hague today. What they are saying is that, you know, you have an obligation to protect your citizens, and that means that you have to bring them back from war zones, even if they voluntarily went there and did things that we think are unconscionable. You mm. still have an obligation to bring them back to the Netherlands and ensure their safety. Many people seem to believe, including the U.S. and ambassador to the Netherlands who gave yet another interview to the NRSA because the NRSA has been real busy mm-hmm. on this subject, that leaving them in Iraq and Syria is more dangerous because the Dutch government doesn't have any idea what's going on, that eventually this conflict is going to end. Yeah. These people are just going to sort of like disappear out into, you know, whatever is going on over there and that they are dangerous terrorists and we would be better off knowing where they are and being yeah. able to keep tabs on them. That is what the Dutch security service, that's yeah, the position could... of them, which, you know, I, I am sympathetic to that mm-hmm. argument about. I, I think that you're probably better off having them here. I think it's less dangerous probably to have them here and integrated into some sort of 
social services system than it is to just sort of have them there like, yeah. stewing in their anger. And also in places where they can be monitored and uh, kept tabs on and um, you can attempt to rehabilitate them into society, although that's a very fraught and difficult business. Yeah. But yeah, nevertheless, yeah, the IFAD's view is very much, and, and also people like um, uh, Edwin Bucker, who is a you know, a professor of counterterrorism, but also pretty hard line generally yeah. on dealing with um, terrorist fighters. Nevertheless, says it's better to have them where you know where they are and what yeah. they're doing, rather than having this roaming around the Middle East. And then they have an unfortunate tendency to just pop up uh, in unfortunate places, and uh, and then you don't know what they're doing, and then that can cause more problems. Yeah. You know, they go back into the uh, the infrastructure of IS or whatever follows IS, because law IS now controls much less territory than it right. did. It's the organisation is still there, and the people in it will eventually form other terrorist organizations who will again cause trouble either in the Middle East or potentially in Europe at a later date. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we were discussing this a little bit earlier this morning, and I think if you take the politics out of it, you know, the best solution probably would be to set up some kind of ad hoc tribunal and then put them in jail for kind of crimes against humanity and these sorts of things. On an individual case-by-case basis, I don't know if everybody could be charged with something like that, but I think it's pretty obvious that what the Islamic State did, you know, for example, to the Yazidi people and to other people who are living in the region was really horrible and terrible and that they should be prosecuted for their roles in these atrocities. Um, And that, you know, if you had an ad hoc tribunal, you could set up a system whereby, you know, people can be charged with the crimes that they actually committed as opposed to these sort of like weirdly made up Mm. crimes that the Dutch government is sort of scrambling to come up with so they have something to prosecute people for here in the Netherlands. That probably is not going to happen. I think your second best solution is to bring them back here and try to prosecute them. The thing that makes me very nervous about that is not necessarily people coming back to the Netherlands because I think for the most part that like, you know, this is a very small number of people Most of them, I suspect, were, you know, young and kind of dumb men who Mm -hmm. thought that fighting was very glamorous. And once they got there, realized that actually this is like a really terrible way to live your life, especially if you've grown up in the Netherlands where, you know, it's safe and things are easy (laughs) here and most stuff functions. Yeah. 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 Um, And that most of these people can probably be. I don't know if easily, but possibly reintegrated back into society. And that, like you said, and I think what the security service has said is is it's easier to keep tabs on them if they're here. What makes me kind of nervous about that is this like slightly weird encroachment into violating people's civil liberties by creating these things with which to charge them. So, Mm. you know, I think it's mostly illegal under international law to try to make it illegal in one country for things that were done in another country there is a reason that like we don't generally do this it creates a lot of like weird legal problems and so what the dutch government has done as we said is sort of create this situation where you can charge them with for example being a member of a terrorist group or entering a war zone without permission or or traveling to abroad with the intention of taking part in a a civil war yeah and in a a conflict and a lot of these are like thought crimey kind of things it's really thought crimes we get to stage of actually picking up a gun yeah but that's not what they're charging them with they're not charging them with picking up a gun and Mm -hmm. shooting people that i'm fine like you've done something bad yeah. but like you know you you picked up a gun and shot someone in another country in another situation and mm. I think that like you know first of all you know the sort of fog of war kind of discussion you know like how many of these people were kind of went there and didn't really have an understanding of what war was like and then like sort of were forced into a situation that maybe they were like not comfortable with but you don't you know you wouldn't for example want to charge like child soldiers with murder even though they picked up a gun and like right yeah. so I, I think that those things are really complicated what makes me nervous is like so for example if I 
join Links today. I am not a Links member, but say I went out and joined Links, And in 10 or 15 years, Links really like veers to the left and starts like, I don't know, blowing up butcher shops that are not like vegan or whatever. And they are declared a terrorist organization. Mm. Like, well, I joined them before they were a terrorist organization. So like, should now I be charged with being a member in a terrorist organization? I mean... I think that that's, it, it sounds a little far-fetched to people, but in places, you know, like Northern Ireland with the issues with Sinn Féin and this kinds of stuff, like, this is like real-life questions that you have yeah. to ask people. I guess the question, the, the issue there is that you are very unlikely to get any kind of reliable justice system or tribunal set up in Iraq for all kinds yeah, of for sure. political, diplomatic, and just um, logistical reasons. It's, it's a hell of a job to just set up a working court system in a country like Iraq in the state it's in. Yeah. Plus the fact that Russia is blocking any you know, yeah. notion of having a tribunal. So therefore, if you can't, if it just becomes impossible to put people on trial there, is it not better to then find some way of charging them, especially if they are Dutch citizens uh, in their home country? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the best of the worst options yeah. is to prosecute them here. Like, I, I don't see, personally, see a path forward. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Russia will stop blocking this or maybe the UN will push forward with it anyway or maybe we'll, yeah. Iraq will decide that they really want this and that they don't care what Russia has to say about it. Some legal scholars have talked about setting up something that's outside of the United Nations, which I guess is also theoretically possible, although now we're really starting to get into, like, very uncharted international law territory and, you know, lawyers are a real conservative bunch and, like, I think it sort of makes people very nervous. Although, you know, the ICC was uncharted mm. international law territory 20 years ago when it was set up and it's you know seems to be trucking along fine for the yeah. most part so Indeed. maybe it's time to think about something like that i mean the foreign minister of sweden has been going around to a bunch of european countries to try to convince them to get together in europe and set up like a european tribunal which obviously would remove the issue of russia being involved in it like if it was set up as something through the european union solely to prosecute people who have european who are from the european states yeah so maybe that's like a kind of option i'm not sure but yeah i mean i think if you know there's no international court option then your next best option is to bring them back here and try them i just there's been a lot of pushback with this new rule rule that they're trying to pass saying you can't enter war zones without permission yeah. because humanitarian organizations and journalistic organizations have gotten also, very upset about this. Yeah, indeed. As I see, I mean, I've had emails from the NVFAA about this. They're very upset about the idea that yeah, just, just going into a war zone um, yeah, would make you liable to prosecution because, yeah. of course, journalists do that all the time. Right. You can't be a war correspondent, correspondent without, without doing that. Without being able to do that. And the idea that you would have so, to wait for permission from yeah, the government. Yeah, you have some kind of immunity from a government is yeah. not, you know, something that journalists want to be dependent on. You know, and in, you don't want to have government sanctioned journalism yeah exactly it's and, a bad you know, thing in in the islamic state case the dutch nationally have been somewhat involved in that but you know if you look for example about what's going on in mali where the dutch did get into a mm. lot of trouble for things that they had done in that area you know you could very easily then say well this is a war zone and we're going to prosecute you for reporting from this war zone and so journalists can't go there which means that there's nobody there on the ground to say yeah. you know this is what the dutch are doing and this is bad or to investigate uh the things that have happened there so you know, those kind of things make me very nervous. It seems to make humanitarian aid organizations very yeah. nervous who are also, you know, very stretched to the limit and adding another level of bureaucracy to be able to bring doctors into a war zone seems like a bad idea. Yeah, yeah man, I don't know. Like, this is not... None, none of the answers are good here, basically. Yeah. yeah, and of course, this whole business of just repatriating, bringing back people who've been fighting in conflicts for IS, for what is internationally known as a terrorist organization, yeah. is very politically sensitive, of yeah. course. And that makes it very difficult because what you have... It's, it, it, yeah, do 
you want an IS fighter moving in next door to you? Well, it's exactly what, you know, an opposition politician, especially someone of Kate Wilder's stamp, is bound to say the the minute the government suggests it should happen. Because unusually what you have here is that on the one hand, the, the humanitarian organisations and the security services both agree and the public principle, prosecutor and the public prosecutor all say it is better to actually bring these people back to the Netherlands. But of course, as soon as a politician stands up and says that, they're going to get attacked for it. Yeah. And therefore it breaks down. And so you have the Fefe Day, who are the main party in government, saying, we do not want jihadist fighters back here. Of course, Wilders will immediately make um, capital out of it. Immediately yeah. It seems suggested. The minor coalition parties are more disposed towards saying, let's uh, actually try and find a way to bring them home safely and try them here because it's better than having you know, best than the alternative plus the fact that a lot of people we haven't got into these here women and children but most of the people in the camps actually are women and children and they should be brought back for humanitarian reasons but of course even then um even just bringing back those people you know you've seen the pfv suggest that bringing back a three-year-old well, might be a problem which is clearly a, a, a four-year-old child might be radicalized and there's no way that the dutch education system could possibly deprogram a toddler you know it's nonsense but nevertheless well, you put that it's nonsense in a place dutch kindergarten class it'll yeah. be eating brojacas <laughs> in a year but you it's know fine. it gains traction with with, with with a certain proportion of the electorate and that makes it hard to make these yeah. decisions uh, politically, there's a lot of emotive language being yeah. used about you know, bringing back jihadist fighters. So that makes it colossally difficult. Just so on the yeah. political level, there's a lot of resistance to bringing back jihadis. And then, of course, as you say, there's a whole legal logistical yeah. questions about what you charge them with, how you actually organise the trials, and, and, and what you do when they finish their sentences and they have to return to society. Yeah. So, what no, do we do? No, there's no good answers. What's the answer? My solution is. I don't know, go back in time and stop the UK from meddling and just creating random borders in the Middle East and assuming that that was going to be like a fine way going forward. Yeah, so really, and, and, really, and, and, it's all Brexit's and, 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 and then the Americans have had no opportunity to no. mess things up even further by yeah. starting the Iraq war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's this is all, it's great. It's, you know, I think the lesson that we should learn from this is that you should stop, you know, engaging in colonialism and stop yeah. meddling in other people's affairs and that... Uh, that's a problem. That's a real. That's a real problem. That's a big takeaway here. That's a big takeaway here. Yeah, I hope that there are legal scholars who are smarter and more educated on this subject than we are that are working with coming up with a like a really good. I think there solution. must be. There must be. I hope so. Smarter and more educated than we are. Yeah, well, Otherwise, I mean, that's the, much the world everybody. is doomed. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, other other than Truby, maybe. That's all that we got for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. You'll earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Gordon Derrick, not to Paul Paters. Do we even know where he is? This no, week? we've no idea. We've no idea. No. He's in he's in, in a in a refugee he's maybe camp drowned, in he's Syria. Maybe, yeah, I just hope wherever he is, he's not drinking. He's not being forced to drink sanseo. Ah, poor Paul. I'm Molly Quell. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.